Chapter Thirty Five of Workers Together. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Workers Together or an Endless Chain by Pansy. Chapter Thirty Five. Have me excused. There came an evening when Fred Briggs sat, gaunt and hollow-eyed, in the large rocking chair which Doctor Everett had ordered to be sent to him, propped up with pillows and looked with curious and unnaturally large eyes at his wan hands and long skeleton fingers. Robert Parks was with him for the first time in three days. "'Nice-looking fellow I am,' he said at last, seeing that Robert was regarding him thoughtfully. There seemed no reasonable reply to make to this, and apparently Fred expected none. He left the survey of his hands and gave attention to the room. There had been changes— many little comforts added during his sickness, and the utmost neatness prevailed. This room has improved more than I have during the last month, the invalid said at last. I thought I was rather ahead in appearance the last time I gave any attention to these matters, but I seem to have been left awfully in the lurch. Your improvement has only commenced with the last few days, remember. I can tell you it has been fast enough. You look better than I ever expected to see you, old fellow. Fred's answer was a sigh. I suppose I'm grateful, he said wearily. In fact, I know I am. I'm not such a dog as to forget all that's been done for me. But I should like to know how it is all to come out. I wish I were at home, though mother has enough to bear now. Did she know when I was at the worst? Not fully until afterwards. The worst came on so suddenly that we hardly knew what we were about. And you know, you had made it plain to me that she could not come. We thought we would spare her all the anxiety that we could. But she has heard from you daily for the last two weeks. No, said Fred, she could not come. That would have been out of the question as much as my going home is. And then he sighed again. Robert was in doubt how to talk with him. He had no plans to communicate, for the people who had shared the care of him for so long a time had been too busy to have other than necessary talk together. But there was something that his attendant wanted to say, if only he knew how, and the earnest desire to say it aright held him silent. He had a consuming sense of responsibility for the young man. He could not get away from the fact that death had so nearly claimed him when he was not ready to go. He had not been able to forget Hester Mason's words and the keen reproach conveyed through them. If he could but say something now that would turn Fred's thoughts, during these few days of leisure, upon himself and his escape, and the probable reason for his being spared, and urge him to settle the great question now, so that no more risks need be run. After all his thinking, his words were at last blunt enough. Fred, what if you had died? Well, said Fred, after a moment's surprised stare out of his sunken eyes, then I suppose I should have died, and that would have been the end of the trouble. Oh, no, it would have only been the beginning. It is the part which comes afterwards that I am thinking about. That's kind of you, I am sure. Something in the tone made Robert feel that he was not progressing. I wish you would think of these things he said, speaking with a sort of pleading earnestness, but Fred replied more lightly than he had since his illness. My dear fellow, I can't. 
more weighty matters occupy my thoughts. It requires all the strength I possess to determine whether I will have beef tea for my breakfast, or tea and toast. On the whole, which do you think would be likely to foot up the largest bill? Robert felt himself growing impatient. This seemed such a strangely flippant way to talk, for one who was hardly yet out from under the solemn shadow. A little of his disappointment showed in his words. I don't know how you, of all fellows, can feel like trifling with such matters just now. I don't think you can half realize how near you were to death. There were days together in which the doctor did not have a shadow of hope. He told me afterwards that he should have telegraphed your mother had he thought that there was a possibility of your living until she could reach you. If he had not been so young a worker, he would have detected a suspicious quiver in the voice which answered, though the words were gay enough. Oh, well, as to that, I pushed through, you see, and came out right side up with care. It isn't likely that I shall have another such experience very soon. People don't, generally. Did you never hear of that old fellow who said he had always noticed that if he lived until the first of April, he lived through the year? I'm a nephew of his, I suspect, and inherit the same feeling. Well, said Robert, moving restlessly in his chair, you have had experiences solemn enough to tame you, I should think, but it seems they have not done it. He felt not only discouraged, but disgusted. What hope was there of a person who could talk so heartlessly after hovering for days on the very verge of the grave? Fred laughed feebly, his extreme weakness being more apparent when he laughed than at any other time. Tame me, he said. Why, I'm sure I feel as tame as a sick chicken. My wings are not only clipped, but pulled out altogether, I fancy. There was no answer made to this, and presently an uncomfortable feeling stole over the sick man that he had hurt one to whom he owed much, and who seemed during these last weeks to have been unfailingly kind and patient with him. He began to fidget a little in his chair, and as Robert came to rearrange the pillow, he said, I seem like an ungrateful fellow, I know, but I don't mean it, Parks, upon honor. If there was ever a fellow whom I would like to go down on my knees to thank, it is you. But I am not of the sort to talk much about things. As to these other matters that you want me to think about, I've done some thinking. A stone would have thought if it had lain where I did, but I don't suppose it will amount to much. I'm the same worthless scamp I was before. I wish my sickness had torn Fred Briggs to pieces and patched him up again as it is doing to the house I live in, but it didn't. I feel myself to be on hand as much as ever, or would if I had strength enough to feel anything. You didn't do much thinking in that line when I knew you well. Do you mean to say that your new notions last? They last, said Robert, speaking with firmness. And Briggs, I have one great regret. I wish I had settled the question a dozen years ago when I was a child. I knew the way then as well as I do now, but I shut my eyes to it just as you are doing now. I wish you wouldn't, Fred. I haven't had the right sort of influence over you in the past. I want to undo some of my work if I can. You don't know how we prayed for you to get up again, and now that God has answered the prayer, I am sure it is to give you a chance to do some earnest thinking right away. 
Oh, I mean to, answered Fred quickly. In fact, I must. I've enough to think about. If it doesn't distract me, I shall be glad. How are all these bills to be paid, I should like to know. Think of the doctor's bill, for instance. And who is going to pay for all the beef teas and jellies and creams, and I don't know what not, that I have been swallowing all this time? I tell you, I've got to get well and go to work, and work out of hours and all that, until I see a glimmer of daylight. No danger, but I'll think. There's a chance for lots of it. Oh, now, Fred, you know you are begging the question. Not but that I recognize your anxieties and sympathize with them. But you know very well that I am not talking about that sort of thinking. Really, this is a practical matter as well as the other, and settling it will help you wonderfully in straightening out all the tangles in your life. It isn't, after all, so much getting ready to die as it is getting ready to live. I do wish, Fred, that I could prevail on you to settle the question of first importance first, and bring a clear, quiet brain to all the other matters. It is queer what different views different people have, isn't it? Do you know I don't believe I could do anything in life that would disappoint Mattie more than to turn around now and be a good, church-going, prayer-meeting fellow? I hate to disappoint her just now, after scaring her by coming so near dying as I did. It seems as though it would be too hard on her. He meant that much of this should be taken as nonsense, but there was a shade of truth underlying it. Robert was very well aware who Mattie was, the girl whose counter was just at Hester's left, and who was on terms of intimacy with Hester herself, a girl who, apparently, up to the time of this young man's illness, had given no more thought to the importance of her life than might be expected of a frisky young kitten. Probably she knew little, if anything, about the laws of influence, nor did she realize the power she had over human destinies, a power that reached into eternity. Yet here she was springing up before the mind of this young man, holding him back from a possible decision that would have settled all his future for him in this world and the next. The name Mattie had been much in the sick man's thoughts, and in his hours of delirium was constantly on his lips. So it was no news to Robert that the girl had a strong hold upon him. What he thought was something like this. How strangely intertwined the chain of influence is. This Mattie is Hester's friend. Hester has much influence over her. If Hester were, and had been, an earnest Christian, might she not have drawn Mattie? And if Mattie came, it would be an easy thing to influence Fred, and I am the one who had at least some influence over Hester. Suppose it had all told from the first on the side of Christ. Might she not have been one? As she says herself, there is no telling to what I might have coaxed her had I tried in time. Am I, then, in a sense responsible before God for all these souls? Also, there was another train of thought shaping itself out in his brain. Somebody at the young men's prayer meeting the evening before had read and commented on the excuses which were made in answer to the invitation to the feast, dwelling on the fact that with a little change of the phraseology, they fitted the present day as well. I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. This sentence hovered in his mind as he thought of Fred and Mattie and they all with one consent began to make excuse. 
he repeated these words aloud. Do you know, he said, that you are the embodied presence of all those excuses? You have run through the entire list. Have you any idea how absurdly they sound when you study them carefully? It is a hundred years since I read the story, though I used to rattle it off like an express train. I'll venture that I know more about the Bible than you do, old fellow. I was brought up on it. My grandmother looked out for that. She put me through a regular course. Why, no, I'm not a bit like those old worthies, so far as I can see. One of them bought a farm or something, didn't he? I shall not have money enough, after paying my soup and jelly debts, to buy a hen, let alone a farm. And as for that worthy who married a wife, when do you think I will be able to do that? I look like it, don't I? But the light laugh that followed had a tone of restlessness in it. End of chapter 35 Recording by Tricia G.